This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk here on the Federal News Network. I am Tony Vernetti from Feds Protection and today is Friday, January 10th, 2020. And as we ring in the new year here on Fed Talk, we thought we would invite our friends from the leading federal employee associations to see what they think are going to be the major issues facing the federal community for 2020. Um, so today I'm joined by representatives from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association and the Seniors Executives Association. We were scheduled to have on Larry Cosme, the national president for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, uh, but unfortunately he had to cancel last minute. But that just means more time for NARF and, and SEA. So for NARF, I'm pleased to have in studio with me Jessica Clement. She is the staff vice president of, of advocacy over at NARF. Jesse, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tony. And I apologize for not clarifying my title with you before the show. Um, I'm actually a staff vice president for policy and programs over at NARF. I really appreciate you having me on. Sorry that I got that wrong. Somebody somebody who's sitting to my left put that in front of me. <laughs> so to say, say that. Um, and then, of course, we've got um, my good friend Jason, who is the exec, Jason Briefel, who is the executive director at the Senior Executives Association. Jason, good to see you, and thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Tony. Thanks so much. So before we get started, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Federal Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. For more information, go to www.ltcfeds.com. That's ltcfeds.com. So, guys, for today's show, I thought that we would I would ask each of you to reflect um, on some of the major events from, from 2019, and then we can kind of transition into the current issues for, for 2020. Um, I mean, 2019, the, 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 you know, as we... It seems how much, you know, a year later, what, what a difference it is. But the federal community experienced the longest government shutdown in history, you know, and the implications of that really, really lasted um, all year long. So there were, there were all kinds of other changes and benefits um, and policies affecting civil servants. And so there was a lot of action on the southwest border. Uh, so I think our listeners want, would like to know how, you know, you see how those issues unfolded in 2019 and whether they're going to, you know, have any impact for them in 2020. Uh, but before we do that, I want to give each of you an opportunity to sort of introduce your respective organizations to our listeners. So ladies first, oh. Jesse, let's have you introduce NARF to our listeners. You're just trying to butter me up now. That's, that's right. Um, NARF is the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As you mentioned, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership association for current and retired federal employees their spouses, and survivors. Uh, NARF recently underwent a rebranding initiative to position the association as your federal benefits experts. It's one of the reasons I had you clarify my title in the beginning, because I now oversee NARF's Federal Benefits Institute, which is our online resource library of webinars and white papers, in addition to our in-house experts that are here to answer your questions as they relate to your benefits. We are finding more and more employees and retirees cannot get answers to their pressing benefits questions. We have a team of experts on staff that are here to answer those for the NARF members. I also oversee NARF's advocacy department, which is our lobbying efforts, grassroots, and political action committee. So is the new benefit focus, is that, was that something new in 2019 or was it in, in earlier? Great question. We've always had these resources available right. to the NARF members. Um, but NARF has always been viewed as an advocacy association, you know, focused on protecting and enhancing your pay and benefits. And while that is still accurate, 
um, and stronger than ever, I would I would certainly argue, as we look towards getting new members into the association, what we were finding was that people want to join NAR for, I think, any association because we can give them something others can't. And so it was really more highlighting our benefits expertise um, more out into the federal community than just the the legislative aspect of things. And as far as the, the, the benefit aspect of it, are you are you able are you able to liaison? Do you get any cooperation from OPM? You know, you know, on that we do. Um, our in-house experts, some of them have worked at OPM at some point in the past. Another at the Social Security Administration. Um, we partner with outside consultants to um, tap into their network as well. We've we've established a very strong relationship with OPM in particular. And I would think that the, you know, I'm not <laughs> going to throw OPM at all under the bus here, but the reason that is that is you know there's a great need for that, and you guys have you know tapped into that that retirees out there really need that is I you know and we're going to talk a little bit about OPM later in the show but OPM's a bit overwhelmed too and, you know they ought to be able you know in a perfect world the retiree ought to be able to call you know the office of personnel management and get all their questions answered or there ought to be a service like that there but but there just isn't so that's a great and it, and you're and you're right if i had a quarter for every time a federal retiree told me i can't get OPM on the phone i you know i'd be sitting somewhere else other you know on a beach somewhere other than in studio with you guys but um it's not just OPM. We are finding that employees themselves can't get answers from their HR departments. Um, HR is centralized in D.C. Employees live all over the country. They don't know who to turn to. If they do, they're not getting responses. So they, they come to us. So you still have active employees, too, just calling in questions with general benefit stuff. Yes. Uh, actually, the active federal employees make up NARF's fastest growing constituency. They're That's about 25 percent yeah. of our membership, 200,000, 25 percent of our 200,000 membership at this point in time. Um, so that's good to know because I always try to. Yeah, I get questions in, in in my day job all the time about benefit questions. I'm certainly no benefit expert. I pull out a you know this. But you play one on the radio. I do. I pull out the handbook. I try to read up on it, and I always point them back to their benefit office, right. and I say that, and they and I get the complaint that <laughs> that you just described. Um, so I you know can ask them, are you a member of NARF? If you're not, maybe you should be. I think you know, NARF would really appreciate so that. Here, no, I'm serious. So here's you know a great resource that they have, and and you know and kudos to you guys to kind of really listening and thinking about you know what your members really need, you know, and and, and putting some some focus on that. Um, so just folks who want to get more information on the organization, the website, and it's NARF.org, N-A-R-F-E dot O-R-G. Um, and also, if you can't find what you need, people should feel free to reach out to me. As okay, well. great, great, thank you, Jason. Let's uh, have you introduce the Senior Executives Association to our listeners. Absolutely. So, uh, SCA, the Senior Executives Association, was founded in 1980. So, this is our 40th anniversary. Uh, as a resp- happy anniversary. Thanks so much. As a response to the Civil Service Reform Act in 1978, when uh, a lot of promises were made and then quickly reneged upon. Uh, Folks realized that they needed an advocate, and mo- as, as you know, folks who are familiar with SEA likely know, um, the association's history really did uh, uh, largely uh, center around uh, the pay, benefits, employee rights, advocacy issues um, that many empl- uh, federal employee groups um, continue to focus on, and that we all work together on through various coalitions. Um, and the system is very complex. Um, in, in recent years, SEA has uh, done a lot to modernize ourselves uh, to better highlight the services and benefits that we're offering our members. And much like Jesse mentioned at NARF, build a community for folks to provide things that they may not be getting through their employer, through other organizations that they may be involved in. And it really is building a, a community, not only for senior executives, but really focused on the business of public sector leadership and public service leadership. Uh, Three years ago, SEA expanded uh, opportunities for GS-12s through 15s uh, to join the association, to become members, uh, to get involved. Um, And so it's a real sea change from being a a club that you join at the top of your career uh, to protect protect those pay and benefits and rights to really being interested in driving forward um, the profession of leadership within the federal government. And and our, our view at SEA is that any federal employee from the moment that they raise their hand and swear an oath of office can be a leader and that the government, if it needs, if it's going to be successful in the future, really needs to focus on um, 
that uh, that dynamic, especially now and into the future. And how does somebody get more information on uh, CA? Can you um, give us your website? Our website is seniorexecs, with a S, plural, dot org. Great, great. You're listening to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network. I am here with representatives from NARF and SEA, and we were talking about what 2020 will look like for the federal community. We'll continue our discussion after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network. I am Tony Vernetti from Feds, and I'm here with Jessica Clement from NARF and Jason Briefel from SEA. And we are talking about the important issues for each of their associations for, for 2020. Um, if you're just joining us and you missed both uh, Jesse and Jason introduced their associations to our, to our listeners, um, you know, and as I heard you guys uh, speak about, you know, the interest that, that you guys, um, the advocacy that you perform and the work that you perform for your members, you know, I couldn't help but, you know, appreciate there, there's, there's got to be some overlap. And I know there's other associations out there, um, you know, there are overlap in some of these issues. I was just curious as to, you know, whether there's any coordination between your organizations and some of the other like organizations out there. I was actually going to jump in when Jason was talking before the break um, because I think the way he described the Senior Executives Association is um, incredibly accurate. This is a group that I personally have been working with for many, many years now, and I've seen you know the growth that they've undertaken in um, promoting leadership within the government for not just focusing on the things that um, he had mentioned. I've been really impressed with the way the association has grown and really put their name out there over the last few years, which is all to say that NARF and SEA work very closely together on a wide variety of issues, um, one in particular that I'm sure we'll talk about as we get further in the show, that being you know, the language in the NDAA on the OPM-GSA merger. Yeah. And then I'd just add, Tony, to your question, there are indeed um, coalitions, mostly informal coalitions. None of them are you know, nonprofit entities in their own right. But uh, we work closely with all the other management associations through the Government Managers Coalition. So that includes the Federal Managers Association, the Social Security and FAA Managers, uh, and the Professional Managers Association over at the IRS. Uh, collectively, all of our groups get together in the Federal Postal Coalition. So that's management associations and labor unions within um, uh, civil service and the postal service. And and there we have many common issues, largely around pay and benefits, although I would say the the main distinction has been kind of the the difference in perspective from from the management groups in particular that you know the general schedule has outlived its useful life that the civil service needs modernization whereas yeah. our, our labor counterparts are, are are less interested in having those conversations nor do some of them share those beliefs they've been talking about that a hundred for a hundred years back when I was a baby lawyer in the federal government so, <laughs> so it's good to see you're still a baby lawyer Tony <laughs> thank you I was you, actually Jessie. speaking of a hundred years I was gonna trump Jason Narf's hundredth anniversary is actually <laughs> next year so you're just a pup at 40. Uh, well happy anniversary guys we'll get you we'll get you each we'll get you each a cake so let's look at just real quick let's look back a little bit on 2019 so I'm not sure what your perspectives are or your members' perspectives are, but from, you know, my business, uh, Professional Liability Insurance Company, you know, it was a tough year, I think, for for feds, particularly when you, you know, just a kick in the gut when you start off a year, you know, you know, where I wouldn't expect you all to say this, but I'll say it. Federal employees were really, really used as political pawns. Oh, I'll say, I say that all the time. In, in, I'll the, say it in too. the shutdown, yeah. um, you, know, it, you know, how did that sort of impact your associations and your members? I mean, you think about it, this time last year, we'd be on the show talking about the shutdown, right? Because we were still in the thick of things at that at that time. Um, NARF partnered with FIA to offer grants to furloughed federal employees who couldn't pay their bills. I know a lot of the other groups did the same. I was surprised by how many people took advantage of that, given that, you know, um, 
the majority of NARF members are retired, but a lot of the active members were reaching out to us saying that that they needed help. If if there was ever a point a point in time when the federal government or federal employees felt demoralized, it was certainly at this point in time last year. Yeah, and for me, I've I, I think about it more as the bookends of the year, uh, and I know we'll get into how the year ended, but. It started horribly with right. the shutdown, the spillover, especially around the holiday times. I think chaos um, was the word you ca- used. Chaos, our- chaos indeed. And and I think that the the only silver lining, and I think it's an important one that came out of that, was a recognition in the American amongst the American people, as well as many leaders in Congress, about the important and critical functions that the federal government and federal employees provide uh, to keep our country running. And and I'm hopeful that that memory mm-hmm. will ensure that we don't find ourselves in a shutdown right. situation again. Frankly, I think it has. Uh, you've seen other legislative proposals out there to kind of forego that possibility from ever happening again. Um, and then, you know, how we ended was in a slew of, of wins and victories yeah. that, that have that have enhanced the government and put it on a better footing to compete in yeah. a really competitive labor market and a, and a strong economy. Yeah, and well, I think uh, that's also important. We'll talk about that in a second, but 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 you're right. I think that whole experiment of using federal employees as, as pawns has really really backfired. And I, I hopefully I think think they're done with that. I got a sign in my office that says, you know, which I somebody had made, I found that you know in my office says you know, federal workers are American workers, yeah. you know, and I kept it there. And, and and similar to like you were talking about, Jesse, people taking advantage of those benefits. We had at, at feds where I just, you know, their their payroll deductions and things like that were interrupted. And instinctively, I didn't even think about it. It's like coverage will be in effect. Do not worry. We are in this with you. I, just, I didn't think twice about doing that. But the messages that I got in return to that you know the the voice personal voicemail messages emails how much you know individual feds really appreciated you know that kind of action from you know an insurance carrier yeah. you know for example that that you know that they weren't you know expecting that yeah. same know. with like federal long term care right you don't right. pay your premiums for two pay periods and you got you invoiced <laughs> you you get an invoice right and how can you pay that invoice when you're not getting when you're not right. getting a paycheck so they extended that to three pay periods you know, FEHB is one you don't really need to worry about. You have to be a year in non-pay status before um, that becomes a problem. But that's not the same for Fed VIPs. We got a lot of those questions. Um, but I do think Jason was really on point with one of the things he said. I think it was this situation, 35 days, that really got the American people as a whole to recognize the important role federal employees pay in their lives because it started to affect everyone. This shutdown did not just affect the federal employees and right. the contractors. It well, affected the communities, the small businesses. Every I feel like every American felt some impact of that shutdown. Like the chamber, the U.S. Chamber, chamber got involved, and you know, and said enough. You know, that's what I've always said. It needed to. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I always hated when they had the the, the terminology. You know, essential, non-essential, because you know, people outside the Beltway are thinking. You know, if they're non-essential, what do I need them for? Yep. And if if their lives continue to go on, and and what it took, in my opinion, I've always said is it needs to, it is shut down an airport. Or something that's going to dramatically affect the, the public at large, and that's what it which took. is pretty darn near what 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 happened. Yep. Mm-hmm. So why don't we fast forward, Jason, and kind of bring us up to you know the rest of the year there and some of the the wins or successes for for federal employees. Yeah, um, you know the the end of the year uh, we had several continuing resolutions uh, as Congress tried to figure out how it was going to fund uh, the government and what its priorities would be. And then, you know, right before the end of the year, uh, you had the passage of both the defense authorization as well as a, a massive omnibus appropriation, crazy Christmas tree that had so many things in it. Um, right. But for our community, especially um, issues that have been fought for many years, um, you know, most notably a 3.1 average pay raise and um, 12 weeks of paid parental leave. Now, was it, let me let me just sort of back up there on two things. So, so the pay raise and then the continuing resolutions. Because I sort you know I'm not in it every day like you all are. The lobby every, you know, were the continuing resolution. And I just sort of took it for granted. You know, wasn't even paying, oh continuing resolution great. I mean, was there any question? You know, that they weren't going to have continuing resolutions or people. You know, it's still real just gun shy from what happened. You know, eleven months before. 
I think the question came down to how much did the did the 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 dispute between Congress and the administration, particularly related to DHS, which affected the DoD and the and the Homeland Security appropriations, how much does that spill over into the rest of the process? You know, the House passed ten of its twelve bills. The Senate didn't even really do anything um, because they didn't have their top line numbers. Um, that was one of the benefits of the deal that happened at the end of the year was a two year agreement on those top line figures which hopefully this year um, can aid appropriators in getting their job done, although I have already seen them talking about because we're in an election year, um, you know, after the end of this fiscal year, they may have to, you know, do another CR, af- you know, into the lame duck. Uh, but but is that otherwise. the, is, my real question is, is that the new norm? Yeah. Because it, it used to be you would go many years in between that you didn't have that threat or the CRs and things like that. So you're just, you're telling me that is the new norm every year we're looking at that. I mean, I think every single year we're looking at at least one, if not several continuing resolutions mm-hmm. because that is the new norm. And you're right, Jason's right. The House passed 10 of 12 appropriations bills before October 1st. I think many of them came before the August recess mm-hmm. last year. Yep. Senate did nothing. And that's um, it was the same way I want to say back in 2017, the House passed almost all you know, the Republican controlled House passed almost all of its appropriations bills. And the same thing, they just kind of went on um, to get very little attention in the Senate. So one chamber can be incredibly efficient. And if the other chamber doesn't follow suit, you know, we're back in we're back in continuing resolution. One of our biggest fears going into right at the end of the year was that we'd have a continuing resolution into January. And then that affects things like the federal employee pay raise. So we were working on, you know, contingency plans if they didn't get appropriations done. That's amazing, because up until whatever that year was, they had the sequestration and all that stuff. I mean, like the last sort of government shutdown, I think that was back like in 1995 or something. It's just, you know, 93 into 94. Or right. then we had one again in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. But um, remember sequestration, the fiscal cliff, and right. they didn't have the two year budget deal done. And yeah. So, like so Jason, ago. let me ask you about, about the pay raise. Um, was that, you know, so when I saw that come across, again, somebody that's not in it, you know, every day, that really got my attention. But was that something that you all were pretty much expecting? Yes. Sorry, I was going to speak for Jason here. He's too far away from his mic. (laughs) You you get the Um, opportunity. You can't can't hesitate, Jason. I'm going to jump right in. Um, So the House had passed a 3.1% pay raise, and I think it's important to talk about the context of the 3.1% pay raise, not just that it was 3.1%. The context was that's how private sector salaries moved in the 12 months prior to the president's budget release, right? And in that budget release, which I believe came out in March of last year, it was delayed because of the shutdown, the president proposed a pay freeze. Statutorily, federal employee pay raises, or the ECI, which was 3.1 minus half a percent. So the base the base increase was 2.6 plus the half a percent for locality pay in the House. President has a pay freeze. House is 3.1. Senate's silent. Senate um, Appropriations Committee did move uh, their bill. That would include the pay raise. They were one, they were completely silent, which they you know spun as deferring to the president's 2.6. President reversed course in August and said, "All right, I'll I'll support a 2.6 percent pay raise." Senate essentially deferred to him. So when we got to the point where negotiations were taking place on the pay raise, I, I believe we were in a place where we were no longer talking about a pay freeze. It's it's 3.1 or it's 2.6, and even if it's silent. You know, the the president will likely do 2.6. I was intent on putting this back in the appropriations process to take that authority away from the president for Congress to take back the authority it has. So the, the conversation was 3.1, 2.6, 3.1, 2.6. This is the first time Congress has appropriated a pay raise since 2010. Um, it is at par with both the private sector and how military the military pay increase Returning to pay parity was a big priority for the House Majority Leader, Sonny Hoyer. So to your point, you know, I take nothing for granted. We were working really hard on the 3.1, but at the end of the day, I was pretty optimistic that that was going to I mean, be was there any feeling like like we, 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 we owe this to federal employees after, you know, what they went through in the 
I You've think it's less of an less. O and it's more of a, a, a labor economics a question. Need, a need. The economy like, gonna, is so strong. The, the, the recognition that the government can't attract retained well, talent. It was going to be a human capital needs. issue. Human gonna, capital we were going to create more it's, human capital crisis. So it was a, it was a necessary thing. 70%. We're not doing anybody any favors. This is yeah. what we need to keep you know yeah. our, our best and our brightest. 70% of the issues on the, gov- the GAO high-risk list are underpinned by human capital challenges. It's, like I said, it's a growing recognition that the the government so, has to pay people if it wants to do it. So job. The, the three, the three point two. So should federal employees feel good about this? Should they be stoked about this? I mean, if you've had your federal employees who've been employed for the last ten years had their pay frozen for three years, they saw smaller than market value for the several years um, after that. They've had the president propose a pay freeze twice. I don't think anyone's feeling warm and fuzzy over you know three point one, or if you're in Arresta U.S., you know two point something and some change D.C. 3.5. Um, I don't think anyone's feeling warm and fuzzy. I think there's probably a lot of, you know, well, it's a, you know, they're appreciative, but also it's about Thank time. Thank you. That's great. Well, there are certain folks who uh, don't get to benefit much from it if they're capped out. Uh, pay compression right. is a growing issue that I, I think will actually start be talked, you know, folks will be talking about again in the future because it's grown to be a, such a huge issue once again. And maybe we can talk about it. Yep. Um, Absolutely. After, after the break, I think Tony is aching to take over there. <laughs> You're, they, they like to keep me on on cue here on, on the, the corners. So you're on you're on Fed Talk, and we're discussing what's in store for the federal community in 2020 with representatives from NARF and SEA. We'll continue our discussion with Jesse and Jason after this break, and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network. I'm Tony Bernetti from Feds Protection, and I'm here with Jesse Clement from NARF and Jason Briefel from SEA. And we were talking about the important issues for each of their associations for 2020. Um, so, Jason, um, I had you bring us um, to conclusion for 2019, and you talked a little bit about the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and you know all its basket of goodies that it had for, for federal employees. So tell us a little bit about what it had in there. Always a basket of goodies uh, <laughs> every year. Um, it did several things that that we focus especially on and I think are really important. It sent important signals for the way forward. Um, uh, when Congress passed um, tax reform two years ago, there was a provision that um, made when federal employees relocate for their job, those relocations become taxable income. Right. There was a fix in the NDAA that addresses that issue retroactively. And so uh, definitely encourage anyone, if you've moved for your job in the past two years, to consult a tax professional uh, to find out about that. It was always um, taxable. They just couldn't take the deduction well, anymore. Agencies used to cover the cost they used to on gross behalf it of the employees. Yeah. And because of the way the tax law was written, it then was Tons of calls on. I would get on that. Yep. And it's almost that, like when that happened, but under the radar, this is going to impact them. Even the federal agencies were caught flat-footed well, on that. Well, it affected agencies in terms of including at our national security agencies, whether DOD, DHS, Justice, who do move a lot of folks. They were they were using more TDYs, uh, yeah. other things, as opposed to, to putting folks there to try to mitigate the uh, impact on their employees. Right. Um, uh, there is a lot of signals around the DOD workforce in terms of trying to enhance its its capacity, um, enhancing and, and raising the L, the numbers of DOD civilian employees, moving away from outsourcing as much of their work as they've done in the past, uh, trying to better calibrate that. Some provisions to um, 
develop a civilian um, equivalent to the ROTC program so that they can seed their talent pipeline from the college level. Um, I think things like that are important. There was also some fixes that dealt with um, – um, you know, the ability of agencies to direct hire recent college graduates. Um, so, previously, there was Congress had basically created a zero denominator right. in terms of the number of folks who could use that. So it was a, a effectless authority. So it's better. It's easier for them for them to get interns and really still have to wait OPM regulations on it. I think they had pre-drafted them and should be issuing them soon. Uh-huh. Um, we shall see. Um, so those those were some of the kind of important low, you know, things that happened and I know Jesse also has has several others, including one that we work closely on um, related to the OPM GSA merger. And I appreciate that Jason took all like the the smaller niche ones that um, so I could focus on the biggies. Um, but I wanted to correct actually Tony something I had said previously about the pay raise last year's pay increase, the one point nine percent that was delayed until after the shutdown and then retroactive. That was the first time Congress had appropriated a pay raise since two thousand ten. Not this year. Official like correction noted. Official Thank you. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to start with the NDAA because I get so excited well, about let's it. Go. <laughs> so let's start with let's start with 12 weeks of paid parental leave for federal employees. This is something that passed the House um, in 2008 and 2009 and then saw no action after that point. It's something that, <clears throat> excuse me, our organizations um, as a whole have been working on for a really long time. Paid parental leave is common now in the private sector, and not just the big, not just the biggies, right? Not just the Netflix and the Apples of the world, right? We're talking across the board, providing some sort of paid leave following the birth, adoption, foster placement of a child is really common in the private sector. And if you look at the individuals entering the workforce today, um, I hate categorizing and lumping all millennials into one category, but I will for the sake of ease of this conversation. When you look at surveys of millennials over the last few years, all of them, not just women, men and women say that providing paid parental leave has at least somewhat of a factor when deciding whether or not to take a job. The federal government lags when it comes to this proposal. So we started the NDAA process with the House approving 12 weeks of paid family leave. That's 12 weeks of leave for any event covered under the Family Medical and Leave Act. That could be a sick child, a sick parent, a sick spouse. Um, And we ended the NDAA through what I believe were very, very tense negotiations on the Hill. Um, Senate leaders were very hesitant to give on this proposal. Um, We've all read the news reports that it took Space Force and House Democrats agreeing to Space Force to make it happen. Um, They ended up with 12 weeks of just paid parental parental leave for federal employees. That's the birth, adoption, or foster placement of a child. Um, But from, from where we started, from where the Senate started, in terms of what they were willing to give on this proposal, even though we didn't get the full paid family leave, Getting 12 weeks of paid parental leave is many, many steps from where the Senate started this conversation. And it's funny, like you talked to, you know, about how the government lags the private sector in this, mm-hmm. and yet the government always likes to tout itself as the model employer for for the for the nation. Um, if nothing else, it's the larger, largest. It's the largest. Employer I get in that. It is the largest, but they've always, you know. You know, and when I used to teach courses on there, you know, Purcell courses and things like that, we always would say that they lead in sort of accommodation issues, how they do disability recruitment and things like this. And you know, I remember back when the when FEMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, first came out, and I was a lawyer working for ATF, and we had to draft the regulations for that, and that was new for all the country, and they were way out in front of it there. But it's interesting to see how how the rest of corporate world has has gone fast forward. It's similar to kind of like the technology advances have done that too. Absolutely. And I think it actually goes back to a point that Jason had made earlier. The federal government as a whole lags in human capital talent management, right? And we we keep saying we, not not me, but you know, members of Congress, the federal government needs to run more like a business. It needs to run more like a business, but it's not investing in human capital. This isn't a ben- 12 weeks of paid leave, paid parental leave isn't a benefit for federal employees. It's smart human resource practice, right? This is how you retain good employees. There are any number of reports and studies on companies 
that didn't have this, they did it, and where their retention, how their retention increased, right? This is this is a human capital practice, not necessarily a benefit. Well, and one thing I'll add to that is, uh, interestingly, the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, recently mm-hmm. put out, uh, I think, proposed rules or regulations that would um, have certain human capital indicators um, marked and tracked for major publicly traded companies. And I think that that sends a signal that there's a recognition in the marketplace that those factors directly affect the bottom line of companies. And at the end of the day, the bottom line of your company and the federal government is the ability to deliver service for the public. And if your employees are uh, distracted with issues at home or they're having to take off leave because it's not provided by their employer, they're not going to be as productive, as effective or efficient. Right. Are they're going to right. You're absolutely right. They're going to find ways to, to, to do it anyway or they're going to call in sick. There's going to be, you know, simply, you know, you know, all kinds of all kinds of abuses are worse. They do what I like to say all the time. They deprive the government of the most important commodity they have, which is themselves and yep. their services. And that's really, you know, what what we're speaking to here. I think right? we could literally do an entire show on not just paid parental <laughs> leave, but also human capital for the, in the federal government. So I, I you know, I don't um, I want to this is an important issue, yeah. but I want to kind of move on to some of the other important ones in the, in the bill. Absolutely. I think the next one is the language surrounding the proposed merger of OPM and GSA. Um, I'm fond of saying it was a complete dismantling of OPM because essentially it was you can call it a reorg and all you want. But it basically the administration has proposed, um, you know, moving bits and pieces of OPM to various agencies. Most of its programmatic functions would have gone to the General Services Administration and the policy shop would have gone to OMB, which essentially politicizes Uh the federal workforce. This is the administration's proposal from its budget. I do believe this is one area where all the groups, you know, kind of came together. And even if they disagreed on the process, they at least agreed on the end goal. The end goal being the administration should not be allowed to merge these two agencies. If nothing else, the administration has not made a business case for it. Uh Um, And they didn't. House held a hearing in May. NARF's national president testified at that hearing. No one is going to deny, okay, at least I'm not going to deny, NARF is not going to deny that OPM has its problems and its challenges and they need to be rectified. This is the agency responsible for retirement services of two and a half million retirees, their spouses, their survivors, as well as the health care of eight million people across this country, right? Um, its processes are not modern. OPM has challenges that need to be fixed. The administration did not make make a case that the merger was how to fix it. Um, so, you know, we set out to to block the merger until next steps were taken. It became very clear in meetings that we had had phone calls, you know, Jason and I together, that the Senate was not, Senate Appropriations Committee at least, was not going to block it. It was not going to contain the same language that the House did in terms of blocking this merger. So, what can we do to come together on compromise language that keeps the merger at bay, but also addresses the problems that OPM has? I, I believe this is what passed. is something that Jason and I both worked on. That compromise language was putting the merger on hold until the National Academy for Public Administration could do a full-scale, year-long study on all the challenges facing OPM, and then making recommendations to Congress on how to fix it. And so that's, that's what language. actually happened. So that's I know, you know, it's I'm embarrassed to admit, and you guys will shame me later, but I haven't read the. Wait, the, you, you didn't the read bill. the defense I, authorization I did not bill? read it. I'm sorry. Um, so it, essentially, what you're telling me, it's got, it's been put on hold. It's been put on hold. Um, the OPM and Napa are supposed to sign a contract within 30 days of passage of that bill. We are coming up against. So, the what was all the noise at the beginning of the year that it was happening? But there were certain pieces of it that couldn't happen for statutory reasons. Yeah, was I, it, yeah, it was just the administration unilaterally trying to do it. So OPM, yes, yes, um, <laughs> yes. Um, in short, we can move on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Without language from Congress, there was a justifiable fear that OPM was going to keep the administration was going to keep moving pieces of OPM elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were. Um, We've seen a few things move at this point in time. There's still an ongoing conversation around um, HR solutions. I believe there's still ongoing conversations as to what else they can move um, during this interim period. And there was. I think also very justifiable concerns that while this was happening, 
OPM was being left to die on the vine, right? We're not going to invest in this agency. And I'm not talking just money. I'm talking about filling open positions, not dedicating resources to where they needed to go because, well, we're just going to merge them anyway. And throughout this process, it was making OPM less efficient in its programs. Well, just, I mean, you guys are talking about some big picture policy, um, the impact of it all. And, 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 you know, that's very, very important. But I sort of think about it through the eyes of the Lita guy. If you're at OPM throughout this whole year, you know, you're not knowing what's going on, you know, and, and how motivated are you? I don't think there is any employee at OPM, and I apologize for speaking on their behalf as a whole, who's going to tell you their morale is really right? high. I mean, they have to come to the bottom. I think about that all, the, you know, you know, all the time. Yeah. Um, and how do they recruit and keep good talent? They weren't. Right. That, was, yeah. that was the thing. They, they were shedding weren't. talent <laughs> and, and, yeah. and uh, right. continue to. So we're going to have to stop here for our third and final break to hear a word from our sponsor. From our sponsor. When we return, we'll wrap up today's discussion with NARF and SEA. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show, so I want to let each of our guests address any remaining initiatives or issues they'll be working on for their members in 2020. Uh, but before we do that, I want to wrap up the National Defense Authorization Act, which I promise to read when I get back to the office later. Nothing else to do, later, right? Over the weekend. I'll yeah. do it over the weekend. I'll do it over the weekend. Maybe but, some light bedtime reading sure, if you are struggling sure, to fall sure. asleep. I've had, I have had trouble sleeping. Like I've been waking up in the middle of the night. I, I, think, should we probably, found, I think we found the I solution. I should turn right to that automatic yep. sedative. <laughs> but now that we're done goofing around, <laughs> there is one other provision in the act that I wanted to talk about. Um, and that has to do with reemployed annuitants. Sure. Um, the Department of Defense has always had the authority to rehire federal annuitants um, and granting them what's called a dual compensation waiver. When you rehire a federal annuitant, their um, salary is offset by their pension. Right. Um, and DOD has had the authority to offer them a waiver of that offset. Um, in the FY10 NDAA, which you know is dating, I think, me and Jason here a little bit, that is, which is also the piece of legislation that created the first sick leave credit. Um, all agencies were given the authority to waive that offset, but it had a five-year expiration. We extended that waiver authority in the FY15 NDA and the FY20 NDA extended it again for another five years. This is particularly important this year as NARF is getting a lot of questions, caught me a little off guard, as to the number of federal annuitants who are looking to go back to work and work for the Census Bureau as it undertakes its mm. job um, in this uh, new decade. So this, all this says is that agencies can waive that offset. There's nothing saying that agencies have to, um, but they can, so you can continue to collect your annuity while collecting a paycheck. So I, I thought that that was always the law for some reason. Like I remember back after 9-11 when we stood up TSA, you know, we brought back tons of, you know, retirees and, and, and did the waivers and things like that. Maybe that was a special one. You had to apply to OPM for you the waiver. You had to apply to OPM. So apply OPM, to OPM would grant a certain... Yep. This removes OPM from the process. Okay. The agencies okay. have the authority to do it themselves. Um, and then how it just this is going to be a technical question, but I have a reason. Um, so it's act so it, the waiver has to actually be granted before they're brought on board. That is an excellent question. I'll tell you why. Because you'll yeah. have you will have people that that the waiver hasn't been put in place and things like that, um, and they'll get on board and. There's not the proper offset or vice versa back and forth. And then the government will come later and try to collect the debt. I will say this. Due to the sheer volume of questions we are getting on this and excellent ones like the ones you just asked that I can't don't know the answer to, um, yes. we actually decided um, just yesterday to hold a webinar on this topic to appeal to those who want answers to these questions. I am 
We uh, NARF had a webinar yesterday on post-retirement pitfalls. We do an hour-long Q&A after, um, after each of our webinars. And I can't tell you how many questions came in about going to back to work for the census, asking um, questions like you just did. So we're going to hold a webinar on this probably towards the end of May for those interested in doing this that can address um, those technical questions. So I'd just like to announce for the official record in the 15 years <laughs> that I've known Jesse. I think it's 15 years. I finally asked a question she doesn't know the answer to. <laughs> Um, so Jason, I haven't let had me, my performance review let yet. Me, Can you not say let me, let me, and she's having her performance review right now. And she's texting her boss. Um, Jason, let me switch uh, to you and SCA um, and have you kind of, you know, just, I'll just throw it to you and tell me what, what are the important issues you all are looking at for 20 and 20, 2020? Uh, I got used to saying that. Yeah. For, so I think for us, it's, um, Teeing up conversations for the transition in a new Congress, I, I frankly don't expect this, this this second term of the 116th Congress to be particularly uh, productive uh, in many ways. Um, and so, you know, we, we're like like I talked about earlier, we're we're really interested in driving this conversation around public service leadership. Um, raising important questions about how the government is managing its people, its human capital assets. Is you the think that applies into a lot of the things we're talking about, the human capital yeah, crisis? I think it's, uh, I think historically we've, we've being Congress, administrations, whoever has looked at individual pieces of this puzzle, but hasn't looked at it holistically. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're at a point, especially with the impact of technology and changes going on in the economy for the future of work, that having that bigger conversation envisioning that future state and putting that out there so that folks can think about it is really important. And we have several activities ongoing that that deal with that. You know, I think one of the, the main things, or I guess a big thing that I'll, I'll be focusing on, SEA will be focusing on up on the Hill, is trying to restore quorum to the Merit Systems Protection Board. Right. Um, it's been over two years. Um, this is a bipartisan failure um, that reflects a lack of understanding of why federal employees have protections, it's not for them. It's actually for the public so that, that they can ensure. Is it, a, is it a lack of understanding or a lack of caring? It's, it's a combination of Senate Republicans don't want to use floor time on this. They'd be happy to pass the three individuals who have cleared the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Um, on, you know, they're already on the floor. They'd be happy to pass them under unanimous consent. Um, but the Democrats, at the behest of AFGE, are holding the nominations because of unstated and, frankly, unreasonable concerns about these individuals that are not based on any fact that is in the public record whatsoever. So classic Washington, D.C. politics. And, and it gets to, you know, they'd prefer to wait until there's a Democratic administration. And, you know, unfortunately, for managers, for non-bargaining unit employees— for law enforcement, but, the MSPB is the only game in town where they can enforce well, their but rights. But again, it goes to back how we started the show, how government employees, you know, are, are still being used, you know, mm -hmm. in, in pawns, you know, a, a, along the way. And the, and, and, and it's and now I agree. And this isn't only about the employees. This is also about the federal employer, agencies who have taken appropriate action right. against employees who deserve to be fired or disciplined are also on a holding pattern. With those individuals just sitting there out, there are on mutual leave. interests here that they don't and, appreciate, and and so I I'm not sure if the if this logjam can be broken, but it's something that we continue to to really emphasize because it really gets to the core of do we have a merit system and what it's all about. It ties in with some of the OPM issues. It ties in with some of these other issues. How does the federal employer ensure? The politics are not driving the decision that employees are making in their day to day jobs or right. their day to day decisions. Right. And then I know you guys are you know, always looking at the civil service modernization and, and those things. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, we have a couple initiatives going on with that. So SEA has 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 in been intentional in using the phrase modernization as opposed to reform. Um, we think that's important because reform connotes that everything is broken, and and we really think that the core of the system, the merit system principles, um, are valid. Um, but it, but the, the system overall, this bureaucratic system that favors and, and drives toward compliance, toward, you know, always looking over your shoulder. There's, you know, an IG, there's, there's an OPM, there's, there's whoever always coming to look after you. Right. It, it focuses on uh, process 
as opposed to outcomes. And if we want federal employees to act and behave, innovate like the professionals that they are, we have to re- pull back the shackles that are holding them back that, that just make them more interested in following the rules than doing the right thing. And um, So more flexibilities? More flexibilities. I think a lot of it's, you know, we talk a lot about taking red tape off uh, right. businesses and in the, in the private sector. Well, <laughs> There's a lot of red tape and, and just, it's, you know, BS that you know, are holding federal employees back from doing the best that they can. I see it. I, it's akin to like what you say in the postal service is like they're, they're, they're government when they want to be, right? They're, right? they're government when they when they want sovereign immunity and, and they don't want to be government when they want to do what they want on, you know. Pay. Pay and pay, right, and all those things. But the same thing is they constantly talk about, you know, having the, the – the public sector, the federal sector, act more like like the private sector, you know, and try to do certain things. Like the big things, they want to be able to fire them like the private sector or that. I hate that rhetoric, you know, as you well know, that you can't fire problem employees. You absolutely can. And you can, you know, the rules exist to do it. You can do it right. And I hate every time a new administration comes in, they want to like, quote, reform it and do it better. But, you know, and then they don't, you know, they don't, Act like they don't want to act like the private sector or try to act more progressively, as I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. And and make changes along the way on all the all the other issues. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the failed NSPS experiment at DOD, right? right. That was that whole system was built on the premise that twenty percent of DOD employees were underperforming, deserved to be fired, but they can't. NSPS rolled out, they rolled it back, but all the managers went in. You know how many people got fired under NSPS? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to run the run the actual numbers because there is a drastic distinction between the perception mm-hmm. of what's going on and then and then the actual the actual numbers. Absolutely. So yeah. Um, so Jesse, let me um, let me turn to you and, and ask you what what sort of big issues NARF's looking for twenty twenty. Right. I agree with Jason. I don't think is this is going to be a terribly productive congressional year, but there are a few things on NARF's plate that we're going to focus on in the second half of this Congress. The first being legislation to change how the COLAs are calculated, COLAs for Social Security and federal annuities. They do not measure how seniors spend their money. There's legislation in the House that would calculate the COLAs based on the CPIE, which is E for elderly. That would most certainly be uh, more indicative of how those over the age of 62 spend their money. We're going to be working on that. Um, Reform of the windfall elimination provision. There are two competing bills in the House in addition to the full repeal bill that's been introduced every year, probably since these two provisions um, became law. Um, But I think the environment is right for bipartisan WEP reform. Um, NARF supports both of the pieces of legislation. We are hopeful that the two sponsors can come together and do some um, bipartisan work there. And as always, postal reform is high on NARF's agenda NARF represents our NARF's membership is 20, 25 percent postal retirees. So postal reform um, is high on our list as well. Great. Great. So that's all the time we have for, for today's show. It always goes by super fast. But I would like to encourage anybody listening who um, wants, you know, is thinking about being a member of one of these organizations. You really should um, participate Take advantage, get on their website, look at all the benefits. We've only scratched the surface um, of what they do for you. Um, so that's narf.org and then seniorexecs.org for, for SEA. So Jesse and Jason, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having us, Tony. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Just a reminder that Fed Talk is brought to you by the attorneys at Shaw, Branson, and Roth. Have a great weekend.